So I'm going to ask you to uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, um, where we're going to put in today. And uh, for the, since there's so many visitors here, I think I should say, uh, issue this caveat. I'm not one of the pastors here. Um, Pastor Brent, who's in the regular rotation here, has had surgery a few weeks ago. Apparently he's doing great, but he's been, you know, unavailable for several weeks. So they had to dig pretty deep into the bench. So here I am. Um, yeah, First Peter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 7 here in just a few minutes. But in 1993, the exact date was March 25th, and it was 534 in the morning. Nancy and I lived with our family out outside of Hillsborough on a five-acre piece of property. And um, I was jolted out of bed that morning by the sound of what I thought was a freight train. I mean, there was the rumbling, there was the roar, there was a, it was onrushing, it seemed like it was coming on. Now, the peculiar thing about it is that there wasn't a railroad track within five miles of our house. So I jumped up out of bed and looked out the window and saw something I'll never forget. And that was what they came to call, be called the spring break quake. And it was what they called a roller. And if you've never seen this, if you see it once, you'll never forget it. I looked out across our property. We had trees growing out there. And I would guess maybe about this high, a wave. My property was doing the wave. And a roll went right across there, you know, and the house went up with it and down, and it was kind of like, whoa. I mean, you'll not forget that if you ever have that experience. It, was, it wasn't that big a quake, but it was, um, but it did spark new interest in something that seismologists, that's earthquake guys, have been uh, studying for a long time, and that is the ca the, what they call the cascade subduction zone. And what that is, is it's a, it's a big fault that's way bigger than the San Andreas Fault that goes all the way from Cape Mendocino, California, all the way to north of Vancouver Island. It's about 700 miles off the coast. And it makes, as they say, the San Andreas Fault look like a piker. And so because of that, seismologists have been saying for years and years that there's going to be a big one, a big one. And the one that we had back in in 93 was not the big one because the big one they say could completely reconfigure the you know the pacific coast all along north america so with that you're saying all the bad news thank you appreciate that so much but but so and we're going somewhere with this so uh in anticipation of that uh the portland school district decided that they should try to earthquake proof the schools which is a good idea my company was hired to move a tree, we did tree moving, and we moved a tree away from the corner of Lincoln High School in downtown Portland so that they could dig down and do what they needed to to earthquake-proof the building. So we moved the tree, and, and I thought I'd stick around because I, I had never seen earth, you know, building get earthquake-proof before. So what I thought was that they would have to dig this thing out and pour this massive new kind of structure in there that would, you know, that you would think would help with the big one. And uh, what I was really surprised to find out what they did was they didn't, didn't dig a hole a lot bigger than the one that we had to move the tree. And they put a relatively small, surprisingly small, concrete jacket on the corner. They just reinforced the corner. And I said, well, when's the rest of it going to happen? They said, that's it. I said, really? And they said, yeah. 
Um, and I found out later that in an earthquake, even possibly the big one, that the walls on a building can wobble back and forth as long as the foundation in the corner place stays in place. And all I had to do was to do that. So in 1 Peter 4, in verse 7, it says, this a, a phrase that really ought to get our attention full on, the end of all things is near. I think that's Peter's way of saying, a big one's coming. Everything, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that you've known as normal and expect as normal, and the way things have been, ain't going to be that way anymore. The big one is coming. Now, the people that Peter wrote his letter to were already experiencing the kind of tremors, if you will, in advance of what Peter was talking about. I mean, they were, they were poor, they were persecuted, um, they were under the Roman boot, if you want to say, um, and things were, were not very pleasant at all. And there was just a lot of craziness. I mean, if you think that our rulers are crazy, Nero was the ruler in Rome at the time. He was the emperor. And in addition to dipping Christians in oil and lighting them up as garden torches for his party, uh, he did some other crazy things. He, um, he kicked his second wife to death, and then a week later married a guy that looked just like her. He, he, he dressed up in wild animal skins and did some kind of wild animal kind of lusty things. I mean, he liked to do that. It was part of his thing. You think our rulers are crazy? Um, he had uh, 5,000 soldiers, right? They were called Augustans, and they had one job. It wasn't to find armies. It wasn't to, you know, for domestic violence or anything like that. Their sole job was to show up as his events and clap when he spoke and performed. And of course, he also spent Rome into bankruptcy. So anyway, in the midst of all of this, Peter warned his readers that the end of all things is near, the return of Christ. Everything that they considered normal was about to end. Well, what does he have to say to us about preparing for the end of all things? And as you can see in the society around us, the tremors have already started. And you may think, like I did, that to prepare, uh, it's going to require some new massive superstructure, something to, to take away the old and put in something new that will be able to deal with the crazy times that we're dealing with. A replacement of the original by something stronger. But like the guys that were digging on the foundation down at Lincoln High School, Peter's answer is to strengthen the existing foundation. If they stayed intact for the church, then the building would stand. Peter directs us to strengthen the foundations of church life. Well, what are they? So I've titled this sermon, which I don't often title sermons, um, <laughs> uh, but, but I did this one. It's called Strengthening the Foundation, Solid Advice for Shaky Times. And here are the four points that I'm going to cover today. And it goes from verse 7 through 11, the four points. The first one in strengthening the foundation is to think clearly. Think clearly. The second one is to love fervently. That's in verse 8. 
Love fervently. Verse 9, to share freely. And verses 10 and 11, serve responsibly. And one of the things that we'll notice is about in, a, in an age, in a, in a culture, in a, um, in, in, in a in, it seems like the water we're swimming in, everybody is about self. And you'll notice in all three of those verses, um, 8, 9, and 10, it all talks about one another. Love one another fervently. Be hospitable to one another. Serve one another. So in a time when you might think that it, it's time like everybody around us to curve in on ourselves, Peter's saying, no, in the church, serve one another. Love one another fervently. Be hospitable to one another. Now, I, I just gave you a list of things to do. And Peter lays it up pretty clearly here. And I wish sometimes that in Scripture that any time that there was a list of to-do things, that there were some flashing yellow lights that just, you know, kind of like caution lights. Because if you're like me, when you read a list of things to do, you go, yeah, uh-huh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. You can't do that. I mean, Scripture calls us all the time to do what is beyond us. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me know when you check that box. Uh, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. You see, all of these things require us and should, like flashing yellow lights, help us to realize that we need to run to the cross and the gospel and the grace that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ to enable us to do these things. But otherwise, it's a fool's errand. Um, St. Augustine had a saying for which he's well known that I think is helpful, and I try to think of this now when I read lists of things to do. And it goes like this. It's pretty simple. Lord, command whatever you want and grant what you command. You get that, both ends of it? We're responsible when God tells us to do something, to do it. But we're also totally dependent on God to do it through us. Important thing to remember every time we see lists. So as we go through this list today, we're going to be thinking about drawing on the power of the gospel to help us to do these things. First things, think clearly. Think clearly. The end of all things, be sober-minded, self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. To be sober-minded is, is to think clearly, to think and assess things according to reality the way that they really are. And I believe that today, I think you would agree with me that the biggest challenge to clear thinking today, especially, I might say, among Christians, is fear and anxiety. People are afraid, anxious, because they've never seen these kinds of shaky times before. We've all been rocked by uncertainty, and, and, and the, as the underpinnings of our society and our culture and our economy and government kind of fail before our eyes, and they're doing it in a surprisingly short time, and it's even more surprising how that rate seems to be increasing. When will it return to normal? Will it return to normal? What will the new normal look like? Those are all kinds of questions that, that can 
stimulate fear and anxiety in our lives. And it <laughs> drives us sometimes to desperate and, and sometimes bizarre actions. But the problem, beloved, is not fear itself. But the problem is that we fear the wrong things. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, told his disciples and, and, and the people that were there with the disciples, knowing that these people were afraid of the Pharisees who could ruin their lives because, I mean, they had the economic power, they had the certainly religious power, they had the legal power. I mean, they had it all. And they knew that the Pharisees could ruin their lives. But Jesus said, I'm telling you, don't fear them. He said, I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, Jesus said, I tell you, fear him. One man's pointed out that it's the right fear of God that relieves us from all other fears. You see, somehow, in the church, God has become kind of a lightweight, kind of a comfort animal to make sure we feel good instead of a fierce warrior and a guardian. He's become a lapdog instead of a German shepherd. And our comfort is that he's a fearsome protector of those he loves. And lap dogs aren't much good when you're under assault by fears and shaky tons. You know, anxious thoughts are toxic to our spiritual lives. They're the spawning ground, anxious thoughts, fears, of, of, of all kinds of wickedness. In Psalm, 39, uh, Psalm 139, Solomon says that, the psalmist says this, listen to this, search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The biblical answer to fear and anxiety is to fear God rightly. You know, the Bible says a whole bunch, and I hope you take some time, sometime to read about all the good things that the Bible says about the fear of God, the right fear of God. One of them is this. I've heard a number of Christians say that, that they're really having trouble sleeping. And, and frankly, it's been my case too. But listen to this psalm. <laughs> or uh, Sorry, it's Proverb. In psalm, uh, Proverb 19, it says this. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. That's what was going on with Daniel and the lion's den and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the furnace. They feared God more than they feared man. They feared God more than they feared their circumstances. And if we want to think clearly, we need to be delivered from fear. Sound advice for shaky times, first of all, think clearly for the purpose of prayer. I think sometimes when, unless God is the, the top, and unless God is the object of our devotion, and yes, our fear, as well as our love, 
that our prayers become very me-centered. And, it's, and, and, and Peter says here that we're to think clearly so that, uh, for the purpose of prayer. You ever notice like in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. May thy name be hallowed. Very God-directed first. And I think it's, it's, it's when our minds are clear for the purpose of prayer that we can put God where he belongs in our prayer. Solid advice for shaky times, one, think clearly. Number two, love fervently. And that's in verse eight. Above all, he says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And what Peter's talking about here is that strong, enduring kind of love that overcomes, that as 1 Corinthians 13 says, that bears all things, endures all things, because love covers a multitude of sins. Well, what does that mean? And sometimes I think it's helpful for us to think about what things don't mean so that it'll help us find out what it does mean. Well, love covering a multitude of sins does not mean that as a church or as individual Christians that we sweep sin under the rug. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that if, if there is a brother or a sister that is among us that has stumbled and, it, and, and is... And is, and is and, and it's kind of given up the struggle with sin is being overcome by that to come in, and in humility and love to confront them. It doesn't mean that we shy away from that. That's not what covering a multitude of sins means. It also doesn't mean that we don't, as a church, if it's necessary, exercise church discipline. Now, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, uh, that that, that if, if, if it's kind of the end of the line and everything else has failed, the church is to exercise church discipline. And I've, and I've heard this said, maybe you have too, that, that, you know, that doing that kind of thing is not a loving thing to do. But we need to remember that love incarnate is the one that told us to do it and how to do it. And we cannot love better than Jesus loves. Can't do it. So it doesn't mean that. So what does it mean? It means that um, there are, th th to be preoccupied, fervent love means a preoccupation, an obsession, if you will, of loving others because of what it prevents. It covers the multitudes of sins. And, and when we're loving, we're not obsessed and preoccupied with the offenses of others. Uh, now, all of us have either experienced or heard about churches where the environment you know the fellowship in the church is like almost toxic because of the offenses because of the the struggles in between christians you know actually galatians 5 gives us both sides of this it says for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself but it goes on to say, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. And to put it simply, if we're loving, we're not biting. And um, when our two sons were in high school, they did every sport that I think you can think of except water polo. Um, and the, we didn't have a swimming pool. So, I mean, the school didn't have a swimming pool. So anyway, they did football, basketball, wrestling, you name it, they did it. And uh, I found out later that part of my wife's strategy and her 
acquiescence to do this because she was a shuttle. To practice, back from practice. You all been there, right? Mothers. Well, the reason that she did that is she thought, well, I've got two sons here. They're high school age. You know what? If they come back at 6.30 at night from practice and they are worn out, they're not going to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Be fervent in your love towards one another. Because I think a Christian exerting himself to love others will seldom care or even notice if he's being offended. How about you? Is your energy, your mental juices concerned or consumed with loving others or worrying about how you've been offended? Do you see even difficult brothers and sisters as opportunities to stretch out in love or as an offense waiting to happen? Fervent love that exerts itself is love, I like to call it, with stretch marks. You know, without sounding weird on you here, I think that, that stretch marks on women, my wife in particular, are beautiful things. I mean, think about it. These young women give their bodies to get all blown out of shape, and we've got a couple of them here right now. <laughs> right, Bethany? And so... Um, or Brittany, I'm sorry, uh, to, to, to get all distorted and everything in order to give birth to these children, these precious children that they love. And those stretch marks in one way or another stay there. And every time they look in the mirror, there's a reminder of what it took to bring that child into the world. And I want to ask you, is if you look in the mirror of Scripture, do you see stretch marks on your love? Or are you doing opting for the easy kind? That if it requires stretching, going beyond exertion, the convenient kind. But Peter's calling us to love with stretch marks. Solid advice for shaky times, number two, is love fervently. Number three, share freely. Be hospitable to one another. Wait without complaint. We normally think of hospitality as having friends over for barbecue, and it includes that, but it's not all that. In the first century, it was decidedly not that. The dislocation, the disruption that were brought about by the shaky times that they were living in, the poverty, the traveling itinerant evangelists, and people just in need of basic food and shelter, and there weren't any red roof ends, and there was no Salvation Army. The church was it. And so they responded. Because, you know, hospitality spots the need and responds with compassion. One person has said that hospitality is God's love overflowing the threshold of our homes. I like that. Hospitality is proof of God's love in our life. It's proof of God's love in our life. If you jump to close to the end of the book of Matthew in, 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 in chapter 25... At the final judgment, Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And you know what he says is the proof, the difference between a sheep and a goat? The proof that a sheep is a sheep and a goat is a goat? Jesus said, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was sick, you visited me and in prison. That's hospitality, folks. 
And here it is at the judgment at the end of the age. And Jesus is saying, that it's not hospitality that makes you a sheep or a goat, but it's hospitality that, you, that is proof that you're a sheep or a goat. Now, many of us have heard about the dramatic conversion of Rosaria Butterfield. But I don't, I don't know if many of us know the humble beginnings of that conversion. It began with simple hospitality. Now, Rosaria Butterfield was a PhD in English literature from, I think it was Ohio State, and she was teaching at Syracuse University, but she wasn't known for her English literature teaching. She was known because uh, she had written a lot on feminist theory and queer theory. She was an open lesbian, and um, so that's, that's what her big knife was. And she did some research into... Uh, the religious right and what she called the politics of hatred against the queer community. And she wrote an article criticizing promise keepers. Do you remember promise keepers? Okay, so she wrote an article criticizing that. So uh, enter then a fellow by the name of Ken Smith, who was the pastor of a reformed uh, Presbyterian church in Syracuse. And he read that article. And he wrote her a letter doing this. Get this. Inviting her to dinner. And she came. And after many, many evenings around the Smith table, Rosaria Butterfield was converted to Christ. <laughs> I mean, stop and think about this. You've got a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and you've got a, you know, a lady whose specialty is on queer and feminist theory and all that stuff. It's like different galaxies, right? He invited her to dinner. They led with their home. That's what they did. And what uh, many of us would seen as radical feminists to be opposed, the Smiths saw as a woman in need of Christ, and they stepped in. She wrote an interest. She's written several Christian books. But the, but the most recent one, I think it's the most recent one, is one that we ought to pay attention to. Here's what she said. The name of the book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The subtitle is Practicing Radical, Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Shaky times can distance not only the world from us, but Christians from one another. Witness what COVID, not just the physical separation, but the philosophical differences and political divisions that we've seen within, in, in, in Christians just recently. And doesn't our hearts ache when we see brothers and sisters falling away to the church, from the church? Do, do we just wish, because they're in a different place, do we just wish that they get their politics right? Or we do, do we just wish that they would get the right view about wearing masks? Is our radar locked on correcting them or on ministering to them? Shaky times can distance Christians. But, but you see, it's hospitality. It's that love of God flowing through us puts the person ahead of agendas or issues. Solid advice for shaky times, number three. Share readily. And finally, serve responsibly in verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Verse 10 tells us each Christian is given a special grace gift as a steward to serve others. Now, we need to talk about that for a minute. Steward is not a, a term that we throw around a lot, but a steward in those times was one who was given some of the resources of the owner to advance the owner's interests. They were given something, and they were supposed to do something with it. We don't have time to talk about it, but there's another parable in Matthew 25 uh, where we just talked about the sheep and the goats that talked about the good stewards and the lazy, wicked stewards. But the exhortation is to make use of your gift in serving one another. You are a steward. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been given a gift and you are a steward, period. Now, whether you're a good one or not a good one, that's what Peter's getting at here. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, many people neglect their gifts because they think that, and this is wrong, but it's an assumption that if their gift is not preaching or teaching or music or some upfront gift like that, that the gift really doesn't matter. And that they're insignificant or unneeded. Or the people are just too old to serve. And I, I get physical limitations. I'm getting them more every day. But every time I think about that, I'm reminded of an older couple that came to our church a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away by the name of Cal and Edna Horine. Now, Cal had to be in his mid-80s the first time I ever saw him. Very frail. And the thing about Cal was it always sounded like somebody was stepping on his stomach when he talked. He'd go, hi, my name is Cal. It sounded like somebody was just pushing on it all the time. Very frail. But Cal and his wife loved to make pies. And they pied our church for decades. They led with pies. We called them Cal pies, which sounds like cow pies. <laughs> Cal the pie man. And Cal continued his loving service long after his wife was disabled and eventually died. Now, and, and he, when I say pies, our church had a, a Memorial Day retreat where there would be like upwards of 200 people there. And Cal had come in with his van with seats full of pies, racks of pies in the back. I mean, he had pies for 200, I mean, for 200 people for a weekend. It was crazy. Now, the question is, could the church have gotten by without Cal's pies? Sure, could have. Just like the church can probably get by without your gift. But Cal and Edna's pies greased the gears of fellowship in our church for decades. It was just so much better. Now, if you look in your list of spiritual gifts, you know, we talk about there's two or three of them in the, in the Bible. You won't find pie making as one of them. Pie making is not in there. I checked. But what you will find is a gift of service. And that can come out in a lot of different ways, folks. And each and every one of you has got a gift. And Peter is exhorting us in these shaky times to serve responsibly. God has given you a gift be responsible with it by his power and by his grace. And serving is not just going to church. Um, I, 
this, this just happened recently, we'll have to see how it works out, but I decided here not too long ago that when I find out in casual conversation that somebody's a Christian, I'm going to quit asking them where they go to church. Um, because it's like you ask an employee, you know, uh, somebody, well, where do you work? Well, over at that building. Well, what do you do? Well, I go to that building. It's like, yeah, but what do you do? Well, I go to that building. I mean, you can do that, but that's not what the church is for, and that's not what serving is all about. I think from now on, if I can remember, I'll see how this goes. It might blow up on me. But just ask Christians, ask people that, that comes up in casual conversation that you're a Christian, say, well, where do you serve? How do you serve? Those aren't nosy questions. Those are good questions, I think. We'll see if it blows up. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength of God, which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter uses the examples of preaching here and serving, but it's true about all gifts. Preaching. The preacher is responsible to pass along the word of God. Not come up with new ones. Not come up with what he thinks. Not to be a comedian. Not to be a storyteller. Not to be somebody who can jerk you around by your emotions, but to simply pass on the word of God. That's what the preacher is to do. Now, uh, humor and storytelling and uh, emotional content and things like that could and should be part of communicating God's word, but they must never become the message itself. In effective biblical preaching, the message must eclipse the messenger. The Bible knows nothing about celebrity preachers. As a matter of fact, celebrity, any kind of gifts, because gifts are not status symbols to be admired or toys to be played with or flags to be waved, but tools to be used for God's work. It doesn't take God's strength to prepare meals, to, uh, to tend kids in the nursery, to work on the church building. It doesn't take God's strength to do that, but it does take God's strength and his enablement to do so for his glory. And that should be the preoccupation of every church and every Christian all the time. It's to bring praise and glory and honor to his name. Peter's saying here that responsible service is God-enabled and God-directed. His gifts, his people, his power, his glory. Somebody pointed out that there's a flow here that summarizes this passage. Responsible service is using the gifts God provides for the purpose God intends to deliver the glory He deserves. I want you to think about that with your gift. The gift He provides came from Him. It's a gift for the purpose He intends to deliver the glory that He deserves. Solid advice for shaky times. Serve responsibly. We are living, I don't need to tell you, in shaky times. 
And many Christians are feeling the earth move under their feet and responding in fear, running over this way, lurching this way and that way. It's kind of a Mr. Toad's wild ride oftentimes. And, 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 and trying to respond to each new threat that rises up and, and feeling like they're overwhelmed. Many of you feel anxious and overwhelmed by what you're seeing. But unlike the world that's around us, that's spiraling out of control, Peter says what we need to do is strengthen the existing foundations. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, you notice he says, keep loving. They were doing it. Keep doing it. Many of you are doing the same thing. Loving, showing love in so many ways. Keep doing it. Double down on it. The big one's coming. The end of all things is near. And Acts tells us that God has set the day. There's already a day. We don't know when the big one is. We don't know when Christ is going to return. But that date is already circled on God's calendar. Acts 17 tells us so. He has set a day. And He's appointed a judge. So the day is set. The judge is set. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, even the standard for judgment is already set. And this is what it is. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The standard is being as righteous and pure as God is himself. That's the standard of judgment. In other words, if you're not as righteous, stay with me here, as God himself, you are condemned to eternal torment for your sins against him. That is very bad news. But the very good news is that by trusting Jesus' death on the cross for your sin and declaring him to be Lord, get this, he will give you his righteousness in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is my, probably one of my favorite verses. He made him, that is God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. I get this, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How about that? That's good news? Good news. The end of all things is near. The day, the judge, and the standard are all set. That day could be today. Run to, run to Christ and receive his gift of righteousness. Let's give thanks. Father, we uh, are grateful for your gospel, Father, grateful for grace, grateful for this instruction, Father, and we need your help, Lord, so that these things just don't fly in one side of our head and fly out the other. But Lord, that you would impress these truths, Father, from your word on your people, on our hearts, Father, and bind, uh, bind us, Father, to yourself in obedience and dependence. Father, that we might uh, live uh, the way that you want us to, that we might glorify you, Father, even in these shaky times, particularly in these shaky times. And we'll give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to uh, celebrate uh, the Lord's table here um, in a moment. We just sing first or celebrate first?
Celebrate first, okay, thank you. Uh, and what we have before us today are the, um, the bread and the cup, which symbolizes Jesus' body, as he said, that was broken for us and given for us. Remember that transfer I was talking about where he gives you his righteousness? It's through his body and through his blood that was shed on his behalf. This is a celebration of that very thing. So if you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, this is a time of celebration. This is a time of, um, yeah, celebration and, and enjoyment over what Christ has done, what we have received, what he has just given us freely. So let's pray and give thanks for these elements, and then we'll enjoy the celebration together. Father, we thank you for um, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. We thank you, Lord, for the, a body that you prepared to live in righteousness, Father, to be our righteousness for us. And Father, with that glad thought on our mind, we just want to celebrate now. And we pray, Lord, that maybe today would be the last time we celebrate this here. And that next time we'll be in heaven with you. So we give you that thanks and praise and glory today in Jesus' name. Amen.